0: Six long haired weirdos, short haired weirdos,
1: the government the government the
0: government the government the government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, place for bipartisan rational and civil debate on American politics and policy, I'm Will Miller, Executive Director of Institutional Analytics, Effectiveness and Strategic Planning at Jacksonville University. And I'm joined today by Brian Sponkowski, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Idaho. Good to talk to you again, Brian.
1: Hey, thanks, Well, It took me a minute to unmute my microphone. So yeah, great to be here. Perfect.
0: Uh, and this week, we're going to do a, a Q&A session. So we're going to look at some of the listener questions that we've received in, in recent weeks and a few that I pulled from Facebook this week. Um, and again, the theme is really going to be centralized on what we're seeing with the election, what we're seeing with Democrats, American politics in general today. Um, so some of these questions will probably hit on some similar themes, uh, but give us an opportunity to really have a good discussion here about some of these these areas of of what we're looking at. And I'm going to start with a question that Seth sent in. Uh, And Seth's question is a little long, so I'll uh, try to get through it quickly. Seth asks, how does anyone on the left expect to affect change on the national level when we lead with the concept that our ideas can't win? Well, in fairness, other than Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, the squad, and precious few others, we haven't been putting many ideas out there. The one policy idea from a national perspective that I can really think of is Obamacare, which is great, but we need to fix it. I would ask Speaker Pelosi and those who support her, where's the economic message? How do our policies help the Rust Belt regain its economic security? What do we believe on foreign policy? Where are our ideas? Unless it's just, hey, we don't support anything this guy Trump does. I would hesitate before telling you what the Democratic Party stands for beyond being pro-choice and anti-Trump. At this point, it seems as though all of the left's ideas are with Sanders, Warren, and the squad, and folks like Speaker Pelosi are trying to shut them down. The Tea Party demonstrates that ideas will win the American public. Speaker Pelosi, and realistically those who are supporting VP Biden as the best, if not only hope to take Trump down in my opinion, are willing to sacrifice the battle of ideas. I'm not sure what Speaker Pelosi's policy ideas really are. I knew what Paul Ryan's were. The left, likely without Speaker Pelosi's leadership, must re-enter the battle of ideas. I think our ideas are better, and I think the American public will too. We just need to start being for something, and the squad certainly is. So, Brian, coming from the left-hand side, what do you have to say?
1: That was an amazing question. Um, <laughs> it's a great question. I'd love
0: to put that on an exam.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, here, here's your prompt. Write about it. Um, I actually took some notes while you were reciting it, and you know, I was hung up on the, you know, our ideas can't win. And I think – so I I pulled out a couple of points where um, I I think that there's kind of um, appropriate fruit to be plucked from the vine. One is that – with regard to the economic message, I mean, obviously, we have two candidates who, on the Democratic side of things, are advocating um, for economic change, but it's seen as radical economic change. You have Bernie Sanders, um, who is, you know, has got his very, very large and loyal following of voters, but is otherwise seen as too far to the left to be brought to the midstream to capture the median voter. Then you have Elizabeth Warren, who is, you know, basically, she's our intellectual, our, our wise owl of American government and politics who has really studied um, economic inequality very systematically and very rigorously and who has ideas um, to advance an economic system that's more aligned with social justice, right? Now, the problem is in the court of public opinion, the minute you say social justice, half of the electorate shuts down. Right. Um, so I think on one hand, there is an economic message there. And I think that there's a potential for it to be unified because somewhere between Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren, there is a keen sense that the playing field in, in America is not very level. And Elizabeth, I think Warren has the most clear message on how to level that playing field. Now, who's going to have the message that? Cells, who could carry that message forward? Right. When you have the president who saw Elizabeth Warren's ascent um, when he first started running for office and started referring to her as Pocahontas, you know, there's already been the attempt to undermine And Trump is very good about this. Right. He's very good about sensing where the opposition is and where the opposition is going to be. And he starts undermining it and undercutting it constantly uh the squad that um that the the author of the the magnificent question um alluded to i think is a very powerful voice that stands for something and at some level for those of us who have argued forever that the party needs to reclaim the l word right liberal is not a bad word let's let's own it and let's advocate for what we know is a good and right and just thing to do Then we see what happens on the Trump side of the equation, which is to take that message and to characterize the Democratic Party writ large as the squad, right? Here's this rebellious, radical wing of the Democratic Party, who's even verbally and vocally opposed to the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And Trump and Trump supporters are looking and saying, look at the disarray that they're in. So I think, at some level, the Democratic Party, it's almost like you've got to huddle up and say, all right, how do we stop competing with one another? How do we stop cluttering the discursive terrains with our own um, political message and our own economic message and coalesce around something that is going to be palatable? Not just to the Democratic Party, but also to the median voter to try to bring some of those people in the middle back. I think that um, the, the argument about foreign policy is is an astute observation. I don't think any of the candidates has a very clear and distinguished foreign policy uh, message. And I think, therefore, the Democratic Party doesn't have a very clear and distinct um, message. So I think we'll go ahead.
0: I say, I think the thing here is, and it, it fits with my own view of the Democratic Party for a long time, has been that if you ask people what makes a Republican a Republican, they can typically give you two or three answers. Um, and most people fall into those buckets. And when you ask people why they're a Democrat, a lot of it starts with, I don't believe blank. And there's one of those three or four what makes a Republican a Republican ideas, because it's been a big tent party. It's been the welcoming group. It's been the party that says, it's okay if you're not completely consistent. It's okay if you feel this way on one thing and this way on another. Um, And I think that makes it hard to take a principled stance because then if you start publicly stating it, you're basically telling some supporters, you're not part of our circle. You're not part of um, the group. And that's incredibly difficult. Now for Seth, my one thing to point out is the idea of being anti-Trump can work. Donald Trump got elected saying, I am not Barack Obama. Donald Trump threw out some pretty clear policy ideas um, that a lot of us laughed at at the time and have now realized he's able to act upon. But in general, I think we need to recognize that this running against somebody can still get you elected. The question for me is, is that good for governing? Does that allow you to translate from getting off the campaign trail and actually making your way into where you're part of you know, the governing structure of the, of the country?
1: I think the big question is, how much mileage can you get? I think this speaks to Seth's question. How much mileage can you get out of talking about what you're not? And, you know, in our political science classes, well, you know, we we tend to do things like ask liberal students and conservative students about their political socialization, you know, you know, how they became the sick little puppies that they are either on the left or on the right. Or we ask our students to define you know, ask the liberal students to define conservatism and vice versa. And all that is very revealing. But I think you're exactly right when you say that, whereas the, the Republican Party has been able to sit back and say, you really want to know why I'm a Republican? Here's two or three reasons. For the Democrats right now, we can fall back on some things. We can say we're the party of choice, we're the party of inclusion, um, we're the party of justice and equal rights. Now, in terms of tangible public policy outputs, how do you translate that into something that Um, speaks to the average voter. And right now, uh, I'm I'm curious about your statement about um, Trump proved that you can win by talking about what you're not. Uh, I agree that Trump was able to galvanize uh, his, his voters around not being Barack Obama and being the antithesis to that. But right now, I think the Democratic Party needs to do a little bit more and start thinking a little bit concretely about just defining what they're not, But also having that answer to the, okay, so then what are you? And I think it's easy to say what you're not. And the Democrats' dilemma right now is, I think, right in that moment of we know what we're not, but we don't really know who we are as uh, as a party. And maybe that's because with the squad, for example, um, we're seeing the evolution of the Democratic Party. Maybe we're seeing the resurgence of a progressive liberal voice, I think
0: that's definitely part of it. I think part of this is that, as you mentioned, and I don't want to call it infighting, but the fact that there is such a great divide in Democrats today. I mean, when you go Bernie Sanders to John Hickenlooper, we're playing two different games. Um, and you might even go a little more moderate, a little more moderate right and still find people that identify as Democrats. And I think that plays a huge role in it. So, I mean, you know, to Seth's point, he brought up the Tea Party. The Tea Party definitely did show that ideas could win. The issue, if you think about the Tea Party, though, is it showed that in very small areas, not nationwide. Did a great job of winning some House seats, an even better job of winning some, frankly, surprising Senate seats. But in the grand scheme of things, if we also notice, the Tea Party has been effectively muted by Trump as well. And I think a lot of that comes back to Republicans getting better at presenting that big picture. I mean, when you ask about Trump and my statement and my thoughts, Donald Trump did two things during the Republican primary. He said, I am not Barack Obama. I am America. Uh, and at that point, I mean, my God, what great things. I'm not the guy that you've all disliked for eight years. Instead, I am apple pie, fireworks, swearing. I will say what I want when I want. And there are people that said, that's what I want. That is America. Um, so it's really tough to rebound. Now, it leads naturally to another question we got this week. Uh, and this one's from Dusty. And Dusty says, in the past, opponents of the GOP commonly called them racist for things that were questionable. For example, the response to Hurricane Katrina. You know the old refrain, if you're losing a fight with a Republican, just call him a racist. That said, is the concern around President Trump and white nationalism, racism, and xenophobia more of the same, or is it something unique to this president in this moment? And Dusty adds, thanks for all you do for bringing balance and humor to difficult events. Um, And I'll start with this one, Brian. I mean, I I do think that there's definitely the underlying premise of We're going to call Republicans racist if we disagree with them, because we can find policies that we point to and have racial divides on. Um, I think that's there. I do think the way that Donald Trump has presented himself, his candidacy, and his uh, presidency does add an extra layer of potential credence to that thought. Um, I don't think Donald Trump shies away from nationalism agendas. Now, I don't know if I would say that Donald Trump is uh, approaching this from a truly white nationalist perspective. But there's no doubt he's going to put America first in all considerations. Um, and there's no doubt that he's a white American. Um, so we can draw the links there. So I think Dusty's right to point out that it does feel a little bit different. Do you get that same
1: feeling? I do. And and thank you, Dusty, for pointing out that, you know, bringing humor as well as uh, some fairness. Um, you know, I I, I I crack myself up. And it, to this point, Will, I think, what trump the the difference now is that trump has really recognized the power of polarization and it used to be something that we used to talk about we used to write about that we used to see different manifestations of in american government what we have right now is a president who understands the power of polarization and he leads the chorus in this way so for example he gets out ahead of us so in the in the the segment that we just taped, we are talking about uh, Tlaib and Omar and, and Israel. You know, there what we have is the president going out and making a pronouncement and getting ahead, getting the message out there before the public has something to respond to. Before the public can respond to the thing, the president is conditioning the particular response. And that polarization galvanizes his base. Now, I've seen some data about the vulnerability um that his campaign will have in some states that he narrowly won uh last time around. And, you know, I, I tend to think that we invest a little bit too much in that too soon and say, oh look, his base of support is weakening. Uh I think that'd be a foolish strategy for the Democrats to rely on that. But I think what we're seeing now with race and white nationalism is the not so subtle normalization. I do think that there have been um some terrible moments in American history where we've been on the wrong side of things, right, as, as a society through government. And I think that Trump and some Republicans find themselves uh, persistently on the wrong side of history when you say, well, there's bad people on both sides and there's good people on both sides. I think, at some level, what we need to do, and this is a very liberal argument, um, a very progressive argument in terms of you know ideology, is to say, no, we don't normalize it. We don't acknowledge that there's some good racists who are good in some other ways. We call out the thing and we focus on the thing, and we see how toxic the thing is. And we seek to to deal effectively with that. I think right now, what we're lacking is a method to um to, to deal with race on a level that takes it down from the intense stage where it is, because when you've got Tiki Torch carrying conservatives marching um, near the University of Virginia, it says a lot about where we are as a society and what we feel like is acceptable. And I don't think it's suddenly an acceptable thing to that segment of the electorate. I think it's always been there. But now it's seen as having a permission slip to be able to do that. So I don't think it's a card that the Democratic, the liberal Democratic contingency is playing. I think it's a card that is on the table because of the behavior of the side that they're taking on.
0: I agree. And I'm not sure there was even the implication that it's a card necessarily as much as it's just it's a different environment. And like you said, Brian, I think part of this comes down to how do we talk about it? because. If you call somebody a racist, we've drawn a line in the sand in terms of where this is. Um, and that's not a healthy place to start because that's immediately going to lead to, um, you know, reactionary responses as opposed to well thought out dialogues. Um, playing up on the Trump side here, uh, another question that came in that I think really an interesting one that I hadn't really thought about. Ryan asked the following question on the Facebook page a while back. Did the media hurt the Mueller report by reporting on things for the two years and basically getting what was in the report right? Had the Mueller report come out with no news buildup? Would it have been more damning for President Trump? What do you think?
1: I love that question because... if we go back to, to my response to the last question, where you know I was talking a little bit about the role that you know hype plays in this regard, you know the, the Democrats, um, you know whether well, we saw it on Saturday Night Live with the not so tongue in cheek you know Robert De Niro character of, uh, of playing Mueller coming out, it's almost like it's going to happen, man, it's going to happen, and we wait and we wait and we wait and we build up such a high degree of anticipation that nothing's going to live up to that anticipation, and we saw this with. Um, you know, back in, in the Clinton days, right, that the Republicans thought that we've got this testimony from the president and when the public hears this, they're going to be morally outraged and his days are numbered and Clinton is gone from the American consciousness and the, and the American landscape. Well, that didn't happen, right? And likewise now, sort of like with Trump's you know, Teflon nature. I think things aren't sticking, and I think partly there is something to be said for the amount of hype that we build in, that if it was a hype-less landscape and then suddenly a factual report was presented – that said, hey, look. Let's look at the number of people in the administration that have been charged and indicted on the following crimes. Let's look at the evidence that's being revealed in this particular report. It could potentially have been perceived in the court of public opinion much more um, palatably. And will we talked about this in previous shows as well? That the every time the the Democrats argued that. You know, this is the smoking gun, he's going down now. It it did reinforce this notion. So Trump is saying there's a witch hunt. And for the even a lot of Democrats, um, you know, the, the argument was, this is it, this has gotta be it, this is gonna tip it in our favor. The argument was it's not. And at that point, you know, is the public fatigued? right? Is the public fatigued more than engaged on some of these topics? And I think that's what happened was that with the media frenzy and, uh, and everything else around the report, it just induced fatigue to where people said, yeah, 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 there's the report. Oh, look, he's still in office. Next.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of it too was what came out of that report in the sense of there was no smoking gun. There was nothing that was going to be the immediate end of the Trump presidency. Um, which I think a lot of people wanted. And I think a lot of people even maybe read into the media attention and said, they're not telling us that part. They're holding back the lead. They're going to hold the lead. And then in reality, the story came out and the lead was, in all honesty, as bureaucratic and boring as the rest of the document. Um, so I do think the fact that the media did such a, an in-depth job, I won't call it a good job, of keeping that constantly on front of mind for everybody, caused a problem. Um, because I think we just became so saturated with it where we hit a point where it's like, I just don't care. It's not going to get the guy impeached. People have listened, and I've been mean, on our shows in the past. I said that. I was like, at this point, I don't care what it says. It could say that Donald Trump, you know, personally logged in as Russians and voted. And I'd be like, I'm over it. Like, there's other things to question, concern, talk about. Um, and I know you made the point, Brian, in those conversations about the importance of democracy here um, and of upholding those values. And that makes a, a big difference. Um, but I think the media really latched onto this because it kept getting buzz. And let's be honest, if anybody's upset with the amount of media coverage it got ahead of time, blame the American voter because we kept reading it and listening to it, and they kept giving it to us. If we didn't, they wouldn't. Um, so definitely some, some connections there.
1: Um, I agree.
0: Switching off of Trump, but still looking at Republicans, uh, and then also looking at congressional action, I think this is a question both of us will really enjoy, Brian. Zach from Philadelphia wrote in uh, with two questions. I'm really going to tackle one of them today. By not bringing literally anything the Democratic House passes to a vote in the Senate, is Mitch McConnell essentially obstructing legislation? Is this, is this against the law? If not, should it be against the law? Is there any president where a sitting Senate majority leader could be removed from office for not performing his or her job duties? Besides, of course, in an election in his or her own state. Time and time again, we've seen the Senate Majority Leader refuse to do his job and obstruct legislation or presidential appointees unless it helps him personally. How is this legal? Shouldn't he or she have to vote on anything the House passes, regardless of who has majority in the House? Can the House of representatives file a lawsuit against the Senate Majority Leader for not bringing any of their past bills to the floor for a vote? Um, And for my end, I'll point out, I mean, this is political gamesmanship at its best. Um, Part of this is, if you're the party in power in a body, you set the calendar, you determine what does and doesn't. And that's pretty much where the regulation stops in terms of what's in writing. Um, and in Mitch McConnell's say case, he's been you know, exceptionally good at, at making sure that things he doesn't want to see enacted don't come up for votes. Historically, I don't think that's any different than what we've seen with Democrats in the same seat. Um, and I don't think this is necessarily something as new as it may seem today as much as the way that we're talking about it and presenting it makes it feel, again, different than it has in the past. I mean, Brian, you're a congressional scholar. What do you want to say here to Zach about uh, the role of the majority leader and what they're able to do? Uh,
1: the majority leader is pretty much able to do whatever he wants to do. I think what we find in Mitch McConnell again, love him or hate him, and and uh, I know where I stand. I mean, I, I mean, love him. obviously, we all yeah. Love him. I, I'm the I'm the liberal who's looking at him, and every time he opens up his mouth, I'm like, I could not disagree with you more. However, and I hate that semicolon, however line he's masterful at what he does. The value of incumbency for Mitch McConnell is that he knows every rule there is. He knows how to use a rule to his advantage. He knows how to bend it without breaking it. He knows how to advance a cause uh, that might be personal and have it come across as partisan. He knows how to take things out of partisan and have it come across as politically palatable. He has a way of being able to and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use the term in a pejorative sense, manipulate, but he could manipulate the rules in favor of the direction that he wants the party to be. And I was thinking about this earlier that, you know, we talk about Trump and we talk about the Republican Party and a Republican message and the Democrats trying to find one. Really, who is the the lion of the Republican Party? It's, it's without a doubt, it's Mitch McConnell, because Mitch McConnell is the ultimate gatekeeper. Now, what can he do? What can the Democrats do? You know, there's there's tons of cases of well, you know, Colorado went through the stage, you know, several years ago, where the state legislature would sue the governor over. Um, appropriation of federal funds and things like this, but we don't find very many opportunities for the House to do something against the Senate, for one party to do something against another party by invoking laws and the judicial process. And I think McConnell is smart enough to stay ahead of that and stay on the side of constitutional law, which says, you know, it's really less about constitutional law than it is about the rules of the chamber. And by the rules of the chamber, I have this authority. And in that regard, there's really not very much that can happen to. to I mean, you could challenge him. In a court of public opinion, you could challenge him on a discursive terrain, but he's, um, he's very good at knowing and using the rules to his advantage and there's not much he could do to stop him from doing that.
0: Yeah, and I'd agree. And I mean, I, for me, this is not a, a partisan debate at this point. Um, coming from the right, I'd say I can think of plenty of times where either the House or the Senate, um, a more liberal presiding officer has done largely the exact same thing. The question of whether this is obstruction, whether this should be illegal, I I mean, it's our history. We're rewriting the way we play the games at that point. And I think, Brian, to your point, you're right. I mean, Mitch McConnell does not keep getting reelected because he is uh, such a likable, lovable guy. And Mitch McConnell doesn't get all of the outside money that he gets as part of his reelection because of what he does for uh, the state of Kentucky. Um, Obviously, there's a, a bigger point at play here. And I do think that's probably the more interesting facet. Of this question for me is the idea that we have basically national party leaders that are being supported by individuals from outside their state. And it's funny, in response to another question this week on the Facebook page, David made the really good part that the problem, in a nutshell, is that policies and actions in our government are being decided by party leadership rather than elected representatives. As a resident of Texas, I have no way to exert any pressure or influence over Pelosi or McConnell as their respective party leaders. Individually, they are unaccountable in Congress. They are accountable only to their district or state and their party leadership. The only options available are through participating in the party or dangling money in front of them to get their attention, which means it is money driven. And I don't think that's inherently bad, but it's definitely different than the foundational documents for the United States government would
1: suggest. Yep. No, I, I agree. And I think when we pull ourselves you know, back from this just a little bit... Um, well, I remember um, in the Tea Party Effects on the U.S. Senate book, one of the chapters we did was on um, sort of like new pieces to the chessboard, and we could apply that same sort of analogy to this—that what what's happening with the political rules of each chamber, the House and the Senate. They're also subject to change and in real time. I mean, during this administration, we've seen the Senate examine its own rules, right? We've seen attempts by the um, the, the party that's got the power to basically say we've got the ability and the authority to make some changes to, um, to the rules that govern us, whether it's the number of votes that's needed for a particular type of um, bill to be carried forward or not. There's a lot of power that's associated with that authority. And I think beyond that, you know, one of the big questions is what's good or bad for democracy? And I think that's at the heart of Ryan's question, or at least this maybe maybe where I, I want the heart of the question to be, which is when we see what's happening, is it ultimately furthering the cause of democracy or is it ultimately stymieing the cause of democracy? And I do believe at this moment in time where we see what's happened with the uh, the appointment of judicial nominees, and being able to use the rules to block an up or down vote, to not even have a vote. Yes, both parties have done this, but one party's done it much more frequently and much more effectively than the other to basically guarantee and galvanize you. the partisan composition of American government in the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch of government.
0: And again, I said thank you There's because, I mean, I, I do think it's part of the game. I mean, it's a skill. Um, but it is part of a game and that's where the question becomes, is that what we really, really want to be, be getting at and doing? Um, and I'm not sure it is. For our last question, Brian, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I saved the, the most difficult, but the shortest for last, I believe for this week. Um, and this is one of the questions that Heather posted, uh, and she asked, what are your top three concerns for the direction of your party and your top three concerns for the direction of the other party? So why don't we go and do the top three concerns for our own parties first? And I'll let you go first.
1: All right. Top three concerns for the Democratic Party is one, um, too many cooks in the kitchen and everybody's saying they got the special sauce. But we're sampling it and saying, yeah, it's not spectacular. Uh, Two is the Democratic Party. And and again, going back to an argument I made just a few minutes ago that it might just be that we're experiencing this stage in ideological evolution within a party that the liberal progressive voice is now getting more space in a discursive terrain that maybe that's going to emerge. Maybe we're going to reclaim a more liberal foundation, but we're not quite there yet. And it's finding a way to find our common denominators. And we're not there yet. So that's number two. Number three is how do we migrate from a position of knowing what we're not to a position of what we are?
0: All right. And I'll say for the Republicans, uh, my number one concern as a Republican, we're dying. Um, And I mean that in the physical sense. We're not doing enough to reach out to young voters and keep them mobilized. And even the ones we are, we need to make sure are going to be able to replace our wealthy donor base um, because that is a strong suit. Number two, lack of leadership training. Um, I do not feel the Republican Party today is doing a strong enough job of bringing up young leaders. When we look at somebody like Donald Trump, the biggest concern a lot of people raise outside of who he is and what he says is no governing experience. Um, we don't really see you know, an, an effective administrator. And when I look at the bench for Republicans, I see people like Mitch McConnell. I see people like Mitt Romney. I see people that have been through this before, and I don't want to be the party that says, well, it's Bob Dole's turn, so let's send him out there anymore. Um, So I really want to see us develop better, younger leaders that can carry that same vision forward, and when they get there, can actually execute without raising questions about norms and, and standards. And the third piece I would say is that we are not taking advantage of the states where we still hold strong majorities in the state legislative bodies. We look at only the national picture instead of looking at the areas where we're still being able to make progress. Um, and obviously this comes back to redistricting. This comes back to um, judicial court nominations, all of those things we talk about. Um, that's something that we need to, and again, I'm not going to use the word exploit, but while we have those advantages in population in those areas, we need to take darn good advantage of them um, as opposed to seeing those as wasted opportunities. Um, and I'll go first, Brian, to be fair on my top three concerns for the Democratic Party. Um, and I'm going to interpret, I'm not sure how you're interpreting it, but I'm going to interpret Heather's question, meaning um, what are the things that that scare me about the Democratic Party today as a Republican as I look into the future? Number I'm one, glad you
1: mention that because I was thinking the same thing. It's like, here's what scares me. Go ahead. Yeah.
0: Yep. Here's what scares me. Number one, diversity. The United States is becoming increasingly diverse. It's becoming increasingly um, obviously dominated by younger generations in conversations. Um, and they're going to be the future group making decisions. And Republicans have not done much to help them. Democrats are at least talking about the things they want them to talk about. Um, And again, I'm as guilty as anybody. I hear Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders talk about forgiving student loans and say, I might be able to tolerate four years of whatever else they do just for that. Um, And that is a a true millennial sentiment. Um, So I'll own that, but say that, you know, one part of my concern is that uh, they are more diverse. They are doing a better job of reaching where the population is going. Uh, Concern number two, obviously, uh, I think this whole national electoral vote thing is going to take hold. And I think Democrats have done a a very good job of kind of pushing that onto the agenda. Um, And as a Republican, that's obviously concerning because, you know, you take away the the electoral college as it operates today. And we have plenty of evidence that says it might be difficult to win a national election. Um, And the third piece is, you know, we talked about it earlier uh, on previous episodes. I think the Democrats after this primary are going to be in a better place to tell us who they are. I feel like for such a long time, they've been the big tent party like we discussed. I feel like there's really no principle view. There's no here are the bullets that say we are Democrats and what we think. And I think once they get through this uh, 2020 nomination, they're going to be there. Now, I will also say that I think they are going to beat up so badly whatever candidate emerges that Trump's going to be able to beat him in the general election but I think they'll learn their lesson and change their ways.
1: All right. Um, The three things that scare me, um, and I'm trying to keep it on point with the question. Um, I'll I'll come back to three things that include polarization, normalization, and districting. Uh, So if we take, you know, your first point, uh, Will, about uh, diversity, and if we flip that around, one of the great things about our nation is it's, um, Is its rich tapestry of identity, right? And we see this in terms of ethnicity and race and religion, and in terms of uh, sexual identity. We are a very diverse nation. Uh, One of the things that scares me um, is that one party might seek, you know, can seek and is seeking to represent these causes much more effectively and more rigorously than the other. The Republican Party doesn't seem very interested in the uh, the protection or the advancements of the rights of particularly defined populations um i think that's something that's going to ultimately hurt the republican party uh because it's not just will you mention it being a dying category of uh you know a dying party in a way by age and, and actual uh you know, longevity, but also in terms of the ideas and the ideals, right? Are they going to play themselves out? Uh, I think it's more importantly the idea that we're going to get to a stage at which we have to be able to address diversity and inclusion much, much more squarely and directly and effectively. Secondly, with normalization, I think what's happening right now might be working to Trump's advantage, but it's not working to the advantage of the Republican Party over the long haul. And if I were a Republican strategist, I would would be very, very concerned right now that the very things that are working right here, right now, behind closed doors, I'd be saying, okay, let's keep going with this. But let's remember the minute that Trump's gone, we pull the plug and we don't wait for that. But we start walking our way back from the normalizing tendencies of Addressing other the way that we're dealing with it of addressing racism the way that we're dealing with it of addressing sexism The way that we're dealing with it because over the long haul I don't think it's consistent or compatible with where the United States is and when we look at the shifting demographics the Republican Party has really got to Find a way to align itself with the shifting demographics. Otherwise, it's going to bite them in the rear end in the end third is districting And this might be where the Republicans are hanging their hat and saying, okay, we might be losing our touch with the shifting demographics so that in 10 years we're going to be really out of touch with the American electorate. However, the composition of the districting system works greatly to the advantage of Republican members of Congress. And we see this at the state level as well as the federal level. Yep, absolutely. And a court shied away from it. I mean, the the U.S. Supreme Court basically said – um, and this is a, a concept, um, Heather, that Will and I have talked about separately as you know, part of even research, is um, for the court to step back and say this is too hard, this is too complicated, we're therefore not going to get involved, is one of the most magnificent cop-outs in recent memory.
0: Absolutely. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, to just say we're going to pass on this and let it go. Yep. Well, awesome. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but you also get the supporters' exclusive bonus episode each week. Supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters only uh, access to some conversations with, with the Politics Guys and seeing what goes into creating a show. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash Politics Guys or visit the support page on our website. Subscribing to the show helps us word of mouth, sharing episodes, telling folks that you think might be interested in what we have to say. If you've got any questions, comments, or corrections, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash politicsguyspage. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Benji Fishman. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday, and we hope you'll join us then. Thanks.